Welcome to the First Baptist Church Keller Sermon Podcast. Each week we make available sermons from Pastor Keith and our staff on our website, fbckeller.org. And on iTunes, search for FBC Keller Media in the iTunes Store. And now, here's our pastor, Keith Sanders. If you have your Bible, let's turn one more time to the 10th chapter of the book of Romans. Today we come to the end of the Roman road. I hope it will not be an ending, but rather a beginning of a new era of evangelistic zeal in each of our lives and in the life of our church. I will confess to you that as I was preparing these messages, God's spirit has convicted me of my own failings in the area of personal evangelism. And I have committed with his help to be more vocal in my um, sharing the gospel with this community. And he's already helped me to do that. And while I'm making confessions, I might as well tell you that personal evangelism does not come easily or naturally for your pastor. In fact, carrying on a conversation of any subject with a stranger is sometimes a task for me. I am an introvert by nature. My two favorite places in the world are my study and my living room in that order. And I don't uh, seek out a lot of extra social interaction, but that does not give me or any introvert a pass when it comes to evangelism. We believe and teach here at this church that the great commission to make disciples is not only for the apostles or the first century believers, but it is true for all Christians in every generation, every epoch of history. So when we're not, as Christians, actively evolved in making disciples, we are being willfully disobedient to a direct order from Jesus, and we never want to find ourselves in that position. Well, confession is good for the soul. Thank you for that. Let's open our Bibles, as I said, to the 10th chapter of Romans. Last Sunday morning, we looked at the way of salvation as presented by the Apostle Paul here in the 10th chapter of Romans. What we saw is that men and women have all sorts of incorrect answers to life's most important question. And that question is, how can a person be made right with God? Most religious people in the world, whether they're Jewish or Hindu or Muslim or some other ism, give what we call a works-based answer to that question. How can a person be made right with God? What we mean is that they believe that they must do something, or in many cases, many things, in order to earn salvation whether it's keeping the law, chanting a mantra, walking upstairs backwards on one's elbows, whatever they are taught that they have to do, that's what people do. Others believe that they are born right with God because of their ethnicity or the piety of one of their ancestors. We call that the belief of salvation by genetics, and it is equally wrong. Still others base their standing with God on comparison. They would say, I'm not perfect, but I'm better than many or most, so I must be okay with God. These folks, too, are also wrong. Not only are they wrong, they give evidence that that person is on a road that eventually leads to hell. And here in chapter 10, Paul contrasts all of man's vain attempts to earn salvation with the simple gospel message in verse 9, that if you will confess with your mouth Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. And it goes on to say in verse 11 that whoever places their trust in Christ will never be disappointed. Well, he's certainly not saying that if you follow Christ, it will be an easy road with no hardships. Jesus taught just the opposite of that. Paul simply means that the road will end in heaven and you will not be eternally disappointed. 
Now you remember that the context of this whole section of Romans, Romans 9, 10, and 11, Paul is explaining that God is not to blame for the fact that the clear majority of his fellow Jews have rejected Jesus as Messiah. Paul is saying that God has done everything that is necessary, not only for Jewish people, but indeed any person to be saved. And that leads us to our text this morning. Let's read chapter 10, verses 12 through 15. Paul writes, for there is no distinction between Jew and Greek. For the same Lord is Lord of all, abounding in riches for all who call on him. For whoever will call on the name of the Lord will be saved. How then will they call on him in whom they have not believed? How will they believe in him whom they've not heard? And how will they hear without a preacher? How will they preach unless they are sent? Just as it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who bring good news of great and good things. May the Lord add his blessing to the reading of his word. Now I want to draw your attention to four points as it relates to the gospel. Number one is found in verse 15, the gospel promise. Whoever will call on the name of the Lord will be saved. Now one of the truths that should give us incredible confidence as we part company today to go into a lost and dying world with this gospel message is the fact that we as Christians are armed with a rock solid promise from God. That whoever we talk to about Jesus, if that person will call on the Lord, that person will be saved. Now we have a group within our Southern Baptist Convention right now who's making a lot of noise about this particular verse. They are saying that this verse proves once for all that God is not sovereign in salvation, but simply gives man a good faith offer, they call it, and leaves the decision up to him. Well, that ignores all of chapter 9 where Paul gives three examples of God choosing certain people for salvation. Isaac rather than Ishmael, Jacob rather than Esau, and Moses rather than Pharaoh. And Paul anticipates that some will say God is being unfair to save some and not all. Look at verse 19. He says, you will say to me then, why does he still find fault? I'm in chapter 9. For who resists his will? On the contrary, who are you, O man, who answers back to God? The thing molded will not say to the molder, why did you make me like this, will it? Or does not the potter have a right over the clay to make from the same lump one vessel, one honorable use and another for common use? What if God, although willing to demonstrate his wrath and to make his power known, endured with much patience vessels of wrath prepared for destruction? And he did so to make known the riches of his glory upon vessels of mercy, which he prepared beforehand for glory. Even us, whom he has called, not from among Jews only, but also from among Gentiles." So the question before us is, how can God be sovereign in salvation, as Paul presents him in chapter 9, and still hold every person accountable before him and declare, as he does twice here in the book of Romans, that all men are without excuse? Well, that's a very good question, and theologians have been debating it for 2,000 years. Earlier this week, I had a privilege of attending a luncheon with some of the men in our church who are Gideons. The Gideons, as you know, is a wonderful organization of laymen who distribute copies of God's Word all over the world. And at our table at the luncheon were several pastors from the area, one of whom introduced himself as the pastor of Paradox Church in downtown Fort Worth. And I thought, that's an interesting name for a church. Because the definition of a paradox, it's a noun. It's a seemingly absurd or self-contradictory statement or proposition that when investigated or explained may prove to be well-founded or true. 
Now, the key word in that definition is the word seemingly, a seemingly absurd or self-contradictory statement or proposition that when investigated may prove to be true. Well, this section of Romans presents a paradox, theologically speaking. Two truths that seemingly contradict one another, God's sovereign choice and election and man's responsibility. Chosen in him before the foundation of the world and whosoever will may come. And to leave out either of those truths falls short of the whole counsel of God. And look, much greater minds than mine, which is a very low bar, I realize that, have wrestled with this paradox for over 2,000 years. And I'm a simple guy. I tend to think simple thoughts. And so uh, when I was a young man, uh, I, I brought this paradox to my father, who's a pastor. And I asked him to explain it to me. And he said this, and I've always remembered. He says, imagine that when you die and you go to heaven, there will be a sign on the gate that says, whosoever will may come in. And when you walk through the gate and you enter heaven, you look behind you and on the other side of the gate is a sign that reads, chosen in him before the foundation of the earth. Here's what I'm saying. You can look a person right in the eye and tell them honestly that if they will repent and put their faith in Christ, God will hear their prayer and forgive them and save them. Now when they do repent and they do believe, you will know it's because God did it and he'll get the glory. That is the gospel promise. Now let's look at the gospel plan, verses 14 and 15. And we see the gospel plan presented here through a chain of questions, following the gospel in reverse order. I think you'll uh, see what I mean. The first question is this, how will they call, he's speaking of lost people, how will they call on him in whom they've not believed? And so that's the point through evangelism we hope to get a person to, that they would call on the name of the Lord. Because he's promised whosoever calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. And that's what we want for people, right? We want them to be saved. What does it mean then to call on the Lord? Does it mean to simply say his name? Does it mean to give assent to some historic principles or truths? No. As we saw last week, to confess Jesus as Lord or to call on him as Lord is to declare that he is sovereign over your life. That he is your Lord, not just the Lord, he is your Lord and you submit to his authority. And you put your faith and trust, your belief in other words, in what he's accomplished in your behalf through his death, burial and resurrection. And so he says, how will they call on him whom they've not believed? So Paul says belief, faith precedes confession or calling on Christ. Now question two, how will they believe and whom they've not heard. So to call on Christ, you must believe in Christ and what he's done on your behalf. And to believe on Christ, you must hear about Christ and what he's done. Now you saw these wonderful Yalunka believers in some of these pictures and our men have been going there for, and women too, for, for 10 years now and many dozens of them have put their faith and trust in Christ. The question is, would any of them or any of us have been saved if we had never heard the gospel? Well, Paul's implied answer is absolutely not. A person cannot nor will not be saved without hearing the gospel message. And our task is to be the proclaimers, the preachers of the gospel message. He says, how will they believe 
in whom they've not heard, and they will not call on him until they believe on him. Question three, how will they hear without a preacher? People often ask me what I want to be called. Last night I was conducting a wedding over in uh, Dallas, and the wedding director said, what do you want to be called? I said, I just want to be called when it's time to eat. <laughs> and she said, no, I, do you want to be called reverend or pastor? I said, just, just call me Keith. There are some people, though, that call me preacher. I kind of like that. Because Paul here says, how will they hear without a preacher? Now, Paul's not talking about an ordained clergyman. The word preach is to proclaim. He's simply saying before a person can call on Christ to save him, he must first believe on Christ. And before he can believe on Christ, he must hear about Christ. And before a person can hear about Christ, someone has to tell or preach to them the gospel message, right? One last question, question four. How can they preach unless they have been sent? We live in a world where a lot of people are claiming to be preachers, claim to be proclaiming God's message who God never sent. We know that because they're preaching a false gospel. God would never send someone to preach a false gospel. But we're also living in a day where people who have been sent are not preaching. And that's a shame because our task as Christians is to proclaim this good news message. How can they preach unless they've been sent? We have been sent. We've been sent with no less authority than the Lord Jesus Christ through the Great Commission. You say, well, Pastor, the Great Commission was given to the apostles. Surely he didn't intend for all Christians to make disciples. Well, I certainly believe he did. They were sent ones. They were ambassadors for Christ. But Paul says that all of us are ministers of reconciliation. Our task in the world is to bring about a message that will ultimately make peace between God and sinners. Speaking of the Great Commission, let's just hear it one more time. Matthew 28, 18. And Jesus came up and spoke to them saying, All authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. Go therefore and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I commanded you. And lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. And one of the reasons that I believe the Great Commission is for all Christians in every generation and not just for the apostles in the first century is that they did not fulfill the Great Commission in their lifetime. Those 12 men did not take the gospel to all nations. That word nations, ethnos. We just heard this morning that until 10 years ago, one of those nations had never heard the name of Jesus. And there's still nations today, believe it or not, have never heard the name of Jesus. The Bible says that uh, when the Lord comes back, he's going to have people from every tribe and tongue and nation. And so when we sent people out to Africa to a people that had never heard the gospel before, we, we fully expected for some of them to believe because of Jesus' promise that they would. So that leads us thirdly to the gospel privilege. What a privilege we Christians living today have to be bearers of such wonderful news. Did you ever think about the fact that God could have chosen any means at his disposal to disseminate the gospel? And by the way, that means any means because he's God, right? All means are at his disposal. He could have written it across the, the sky. He could have spoken with an audible voice from heaven as he did at the baptism of the Lord Jesus. He has chosen in his sovereignty to use personal evangelism. One who has been forgiven based on the work of Jesus to tell another who's yet to be forgiven 
about the work of Christ. He has chosen frail and feeble people like us to have the privilege of telling others about Jesus. And here's a secret. As far as I can tell in the New Testament, God does not have a plan B. This is it. Every one of us here who are born again can trace our spiritual ancestry to some, or in many cases, many faithful brothers and sisters who told us about Jesus. And those folks who told us about Jesus could do the same. And the people that told them about Jesus could do the same all the way back to the time of Christ. What a privilege to now hold the baton. And one day, if the Lord doesn't come soon, we'll pass that baton to those hundreds of little children that you saw walk through here this morning. And then it'll be their task to take it to the next generation. What an incredible gospel privilege that is. And then finally, we see the gospel priority. Friends, that is why evangelism must be a priority in the life of every believer and in every church, especially First Baptist Keller. Now think about it. There is nothing we do as a church family in the name of Jesus here on earth that we could not do better in heaven except for evangelism. We were singing this morning and I was enjoying your beautiful voices and trying not to bother the people around me with my not so beautiful voice. And I'm looking forward to heaven when I will sing with perfect pitch. We could sing better in heaven We'd praise the Lord face to face. We wouldn't be distracted by the fact that we need to beat the Sunday school class to the line at the hamburger stand in a little while. We could focus our worship more attentively and, and more acutely upon Jesus. But there's one thing that we're called to do here that we cannot do in heaven, and that is evangelism. Because by definition, those in heaven have already been evangelized, right? And so we've been given this task here to take the gospel message to a lost and dying world, and it must be our priority. The Bible indicates that the reason that Christ has not yet returned for his church is not because he has forgotten us. You remember the church at Thessalonica? They, they came to faith in the first century, and they really believed that Jesus was coming in their lifetime, and they hadn't made any plans otherwise. And when he didn't come back immediately, some of their best and brightest started getting sick and passing away, and they were worried. What are we going to do? These people died, and Jesus hasn't returned. What's going to happen to them? And Paul wrote to them and said, I would not have you be uninformed, brothers, concerning those who are asleep in Jesus. And one day the trumpet of God will sound, the dead in Christ will rise first, and then those that remain will be caught up in the air, and there we will always be with the Lord forevermore, right? And we comfort one another with those glorious truths. But they were beginning to wonder, has Jesus forgotten about us? Or maybe he's not powerful enough to keep his promise to come for his church. Peter says, that's not it. The reason that Jesus has not returned for his church is that God is merciful and long-suffering. And he's giving people opportunity after opportunity to repent and be saved. But one day, that window of opportunity, and I believe one day very soon, is going to be closed forever. That's why the Bible says we must do the work of the Lord while it is called today, right? Today is the day of salvation. That's why evangelism is not only a priority, there's an urgency to our message because the opportunity is short. But the Bible says they will not repent unless they believe. 
And they will not believe unless they hear the gospel. And they will not hear the gospel unless someone tells them. And those someones are us. And may the Lord help us to be faithful. And before we go today, I want to rehearse and review with you the, the Roman road. We started six weeks ago in chapter one with the bad news. Don't forget, people have to know they're lost before they can be saved. And so in Romans chapter one, the bad news is that the wrath of God is revealed to all flesh because of unrighteousness. God one day will ultimately pour his wrath out against sinners. The good news begins in chapter three that God has made a way for unrighteous people to be righteous and that is through imputed righteousness. For all who put their faith and trust in Christ, Christ takes their sin at the cross and gives them his righteousness. That's called justification by faith. And then in chapter five, we saw some of the implications of that justification that we have been brought near. We've been reconciled with God. We now are at peace with God. We now can come with boldness into his presence. We no longer need a, medi uh, a mediation. We no longer need a priest. We no longer need uh, a holy of holies or sacrificial system. We're now called friends and, and we, since we're joined with Christ in that mystical union, have direct access to the Father. Romans chapter 6 says, He has set us free from the penalty and the power of sin. When we're saved, we're no longer prisoners of our own sinfulness. We're set free, not set free to sin wantonly, but we're set free to serve Jesus. And Romans 10 tells us in an economy of words, verses 9 and 10, how a person can be saved. That if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God has raised him from the dead, you will be saved. And we've seen today the universality of that offer. Whoever will call upon the name of the Lord will be saved. We have people in our church who do prison ministry. We have people in our church who do ministry to businessmen and women. And so I can say with, with equal integrity to both of those groups, if you go out tomorrow and you speak to a corporate executive, a CEO making $10 million a year, and tell them if they call upon the name of the Lord and be saved, if they will do that, they'll be saved. But you can also go to death row and talk to a mass murderer and look him right in the eye and say, if you'll repent and call upon the name of the Lord, you'll be saved. I say that based upon the, the Word of God. What an incredible promise. What confidence it brings us that we can go into the world with such a glorious message. Now our task is not to be hearers of the Word, but doers of the Word, right? We know what to do. Look, I told you in the beginning, the Roman road is not a magic formula. Use whatever way you've been taught to share the gospel. Just share the gospel. But make sure you include the elements of the gospel that we've studied this, these past six weeks. And when someone is saved, who gets the glory? The Lord Jesus. Let's ask that he'll do that. All right, let's pray. Father in heaven, Lord, we thank you for the time we've spent these last six weeks in the book of Romans. Thank you for the clarity of your word. And Father, how it's convicted our hearts, especially mine. Forgive me, Lord, where I have failed to be vocal when I should be out of shyness or fear. Lord, I pray you'd embolden every one of us by your spirit. You've equipped us with your word. Now send us out into the world, to the ball fields and to the office buildings, to the schoolyards, to the jail cells, Father, with this incredible life-giving message. Help us to give it away freely and give you glory for whatever good you accomplish through it. And we pray it in Jesus' name, amen.
thank you again for listening to our broadcast. To learn more about First Baptist Church in Keller, Texas, or to hear more sermons by Pastor Keith and our staff, visit us online at fbckeller.org.